Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I know you've made tens of millions of dollars in various areas of life. Tell me how you did it. Unfortunately, most people are born in one place and they live in or near that place for the rest of their lives acting like plants but acting like a plant i don't think is a good survival strategy for uh, a human during this time you're making all this money you're focused on investing but then you started kind of an interesting side hobby which i have never heard of before or since which is you decided you wanted to essentially take over a country oh yeah how did I get started in that? I know what it was. I went there several times during the war. and um, You say things nobody else would think of, but if we don't stop to notice that this is not a casual remark, then it will pass as a casual remark. So you're broke, you packed your bags, and you went to a war. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, everything that I've learned, somebody essentially taught me. So, I mean, no, I'm, I'm totally cool with that. Although, I got to say, I was, uh, when I was on the, a panel in uh, Bermuda, uh, there was a guy that gave a speech before me, and he used the phrase, the greater depression, and he, he heard that I used it in my speech before him, and he thought, he thought that I was stealing his phrase. I've been using this word, the Greater Depression, for the last 33 years. You used he, it on Phil but, Donahue in 1980. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he picked, but he picked it up, and he thought it was his when it was mine. But he apologized later. So, well, not that he had to apologize. It's just that it's, it's just one of those phrases that I wanted to like trademark because I'm so convinced I'll be right. I'm actually curious, Jay. Did we just record that? Okay, so we're recording. Okay. Um, and and you cut and paste, I guess, a few things. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. But but rarely. So it's always more interesting that way. <laughs> yeah, probably. That's um, right. 
But um, Doug, you're probably the most interesting guest I've had on my podcast, and I really am. I have not said that before on this podcast. I'm really saying it sincerely. Doug Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James, and that's something that uh, is probably only true in my dreams. But thanks anyway. <laughs> I doubt it. Well. Uh, like I was telling you earlier, uh, the singer Jules coming here in two days, so she might end up being the most interesting person in my podcast ever, but we'll see. Maybe I should stick around in town for two days. <laughs> well, you're more than welcome to stop by then. But, Doug Casey, I'm going to describe your background in a second because uh, it's fascinating and I have a million questions about it. You're also the author of the new novel, Speculator. Um, do, do you refer to it as Speculator High Ground or as High Ground the series? High, high Ground is the series, because it's the first of a sextet, or perhaps a septet. Right, I remember you telling me about this almost a year ago. It's going to be seven novels altogether. Um, this is the first, Speculator. We're going to talk about it in a second. But I want to also first say thank you to you for something that you probably don't even remember. But um, I was describing it to you a little bit before we got in here. But uh, in 2010, I wrote this article uh, the article was titled, uh, Name Me a Single War That Was Justified. And I was really nervous about putting this article out. So I tried to find what's the most peaceful, loving website I could put this article on. Because I really felt like no no war would justify me sending my two daughters to that war to, to potentially get killed or to kill other 17-year-olds. Like, I could never imagine my 17-year-old daughter killing another 17-year-old girl. For the, for the benefit of some criminal government. Right, or or for, even if you don't call them crim criminal, for the benefit of just a few at top who say, oh, we need to send 17-year-old girls to fight our battles. But um, so I put it on this yoga website, and I never got more hate mail than ever before. And I even got death threats. Ironically, I got a death threat. I tracked it down from from a student at one Ivy League university. I had to like track track it down. But I never got more hate mail. And then finally, the comments stopped when I said, "Okay, well, um, if you really believe in what you're saying, all all of you people, you can actually volunteer." to go to one of these war zones. We're in plenty of war zones. You have plenty to choose from. Yeah. Um, you can volunteer to go and and participate. And of course, nobody commented after that. It was all gone. They were all they all felt they were justified and done, so they went home. It was actually on July 4th that I published this article, so they all went to do their barbecues. But you, um, and this is how we kind of first met on the internet, you republished the article, and I was grateful. And, uh, and you've, since then, you've republished many of my articles. But I, I, I want to describe a little of your background 1976 was your was the first book i know of that you've done the, the international man 1980 you did crisis investing which was a new york times bestseller for several weeks was the best-selling book in the country i actually watched you just last night a youtube clip of you on phil donahue mm. uh in 1980 it was so great to see 1980 tv then and what people were responding to and how much time you had to to talk your points um, since then, you've published many other books, including uh, Totally Incorrect, which is a great uh, book about your a lot of your belief systems, which are so contrary to, to many. And now we have here uh, Speculator, which I want to ask you about. But first, I want you to tell me, I know you've made tens of millions of dollars in various areas of life. Tell me how you did it, because hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I was born a poor black sharecropper's son. Oh. Steve Martin, the jerk. Exactly. Uh, well, what happened? Um, uh, it started out for me uh, when, um, hmm, 
God, I put all of my possessions in the back of my Mustang and drove back to Washington, D.C. to seek my fortune and high adventure. I wanted to put together $5,000. Uh, this is back in 1970. No, this is back in 1969, 1970, when $5,000 went a long way. And almost the beginning of a recession. You're starting to, you're starting to drive straight into the recession of the 70s. Well, that, that ties into it. So yeah, I figured if I got $5,000, I could um, hitchhike and backpack my way through South America, but more importantly, through Africa. And um, through hook and crook, I got into the insurance business and eventually became the largest broker of medical insurance to law firms in Washington, D.C. Wait, this is totally blows my mind because I know a lot of ways that you've made money. I had no idea you were an insurance broker to law firms. So two hated industries mm, totally. and you were the bridge. Well, it was logical to me because, um, first of all, people in the insurance business tend to be pretty stupid, uh, frankly, unimaginative. That's why they have a bad reputation. Uh, uh, so, and I talked to lawyers because most insurance brokers were afraid of lawyers. They were intimidated by them. But, um, and I got into this particular area because it was a question of reading the contract. They had a contract, I had a contract, and I dug up legal cases and could show them how my contract was better. And I became the largest broker in Washington, D.C., uh, for that type of thing. So I made a lot of money. And then I lost it all because I set up a, a company to uh, market gold and silver, and I never got to hitchhike around Africa. Um, so you made it, you said, what does it mean you set up a company to market gold and silver? So you had gold and silver well, that you this, wanted to sell people? Yeah, this was back in 1973, 1974. I'd read Harry Brown's book, How to Profit from the Coming Devaluation, which is still a, a minor work of genius today. And that laid down at that time when gold was, you know, still very cheap. It was in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, uh, why it was going to go much higher, and it did, of course. So uh, unfortunately, I didn't run the business properly, and not only did I lose the fifty thousand dollars, not the five thousand dollars. I thought I might as well keep the ball rolling uh, that I had made, but I lost a hundred and fifty thousand that I didn't have. And I remember uh, waking up in the middle of the night uh, in a nightmare. And you go to the bathroom, you figure you turn on the light. Ah, the nightmare's over. Okay, back to business. But I realized this was real. I was dealing with that. was like a million dollars back in those days. Sure. So, uh, And you were I, a young man. How old were you? Uh, I was 30. So I, that's when I started. I said, well, if Harry Brown could do it, I can do it too. So I started writing Crisis Investing. And then, uh, since I had, had been doing some traveling, uh, and I'd been to about 30 countries by then, incidentally. Oh, oh, and, and Doug, I'm, I'm an in, a serial interrupter, so you'll have to excuse me. So you wake up, and you're $150,000 in debt, and I imagine you were depressed as business had failed. It's not like you just go from that to success. Like, how do you come out of such a failure like that, just psychologically? Well, I wasn't... You know, I wasn't getting up in the morning. Uh, you know, I'd get up, you know, late in the morning, and I figured, I, I can't do this anymore. It's simply too degrading, and uh, nobody's going to solve this problem but me. So that's when I started writing my first book and the second book. 
And they were terrible because writing is a skill that you have to practice and perfect. And so I had to rewrite them several times. And the first book, uh, The International Man, uh, you know, did very well for me. Uh, I was making three, four, five thousand dollars a month in royalties um, <clears throat> when it was published, and um, that was when that was like mm, six times what it is today. And um, it became the largest selling book in the history of Rhodesia, incidentally, <laughs> uh, a record which is never going to be broken because, because there I went, is no Rhodesia, uh, right? Because I went there during the war, and it was. Very interesting going there during the war. I went there several times during the war. and um, You say things nobody else would think of, but if we don't stop to notice that this is not a casual remark, then it will pass as a casual remark. So you're broke, you packed your bags, and you went to a war. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I had, but I had my book, which was published, and I wasn't quite broke then because I was already making a comeback. And... Um, uh, I did what I always do when I go to um, cities, especially third world cities, which are my specialty that I've never been to. I opened up the yellow pages and paged through. Who's there that I might want to meet, who I might want to talk to? In the middle of a war. Well, yeah. I mean, it was fine within, within Salisbury, which is now Harare itself. Uh, but um, so uh, I found there were two publishers in, in uh, Salisbury. And I called them up, got appointments with them. One of them I got along with fine. He saw my, you know, I explained my International Man book. I had a copy with me, of course. He published it. And that's what, and I became a personality in Rhodesia. That's fascinating because I think people miss the point here, which is you totally cut out the middleman at that point. Like, And I'm only thinking about this because last night I met with my foreign rights agent and I rely on her to basically sell my books in other countries uh, I would never think to go to uh, a tiny country in Africa and meet with a publisher and convince them to sell my book. So I think a, a common theme across many of your endeavors over the past 40 years has been that you've constantly gone there yourself, met the people yourself, asked the people to do things with you or for you. Uh, and and you that's how a, lot, a large way of how you got things accomplished. Yeah, I know. It's very important to get boots on the ground because... Um, Unfortunately, most people are born in one place and they live in or near that place for the rest of their lives, acting like plants. But acting like a plant, I don't think, is a good survival strategy for uh, a human. And, and you've uh, been to 175 countries. It's, uh, been a, it's been a passion of yours, it seems, yeah, travel. Not quite 175. I recounted it. It's about 160, actually. So that's How many countries I are there? There's about 220, but then it depends on what you want to define as a country. I mean, is a country one that has its own um, country code for telephones? Or, and what about uh, Transnistria? And what about um, uh, these places in the Caucasus that, you know, uh, aren't recognized by other countries? But so, so about 220, roughly. Hmm. Okay, so, so you're, you went to Rhodesia, you have the international man out. You went to Rhodesia, where you're the most. You you it became a best-selling. Well, book. because at that time there were a quarter of a million Europeans living there, and about five five million native black people, and um, so it was a big market. Two hundred fifty thousand people that needed a guidebook for how to make the chicken run mm. out of Rhodesia, and now there's I don't know. I was just back in Zimbabwe 
six months ago, and there's probably only three or four thousand white people left, if that. And so, so what happened next in terms of your your recreation of yourself? You're, you're, you you hit bottom, or you, you hit bottom several times, by the way, along your career. But uh, you you published International Man, then you started on crisis investing. Yeah. What else was going on where you you started to make you know millions of dollars? Well, out of nothing, like you were depressed and couldn't I, get out of bed. I got into my timing was good the first time around, and the second time around too. Well, I've had a lot of kicks at this cat. Um, I, I, as a specialty, because when I was a kid, the first thing I wanted to be was a geologist. Well, not really. I wanted to be a paleontologist. Why? Dinosaurs. Every kid likes dinosaurs. But I took it seriously. I had a, bought a lot of books on it. My mother bought me lots of books on dinosaurs. So geology background. And then I uh, got interested in money. You put geology and money together, and you got the mining business which is actually a better way to lose money than make money. But the good news about the um, mining business is that they're the most volatile class of stocks in the world. I think they're much more volatile than the Internet stocks uh, even were or are today. I mean, that group of stocks, mining exploration stocks, not the big dumb companies, the little risky companies, they regularly, from the bottom of a bear market, to the top of a bull market, go up 10 to 1, and then they lose 95% of their value on the way down. Uh, it's a crappy business. I don't recommend it as a business, mining, to anybody. But speculating in the mining stocks, that's a different story. Because then it's a lot of it's just perception. Like if somebody thinks, oh, this stock might be, the, this company might be the one to find gold, then the stock's going to go up 10 to 1 before even an ounce of gold comes out of the ground. That's absolutely right. And... Um, you know, I was I was fortunate, uh, and a lot of this is luck because you just don't know what the company's going to find or not find. Uh, you know, I had a few stocks that uh, were long ball home runs for me, and by long ball home runs, I guess um, I guess the two best ones were Briex, which was, which was uh, a scandal, a huge scam. But in fact, the, murder was involved in that one. Uh, that's right. That's right. And um, I never, I never met any of the players in that personally. But I was buying stock at a dollar, which is pretty expensive for penny stocks, and the thing ran to two hundred and something. And then Diamond Fields, uh, they were hunting for offshore diamonds off the coast of Namibia, but totally by accident, they found one of the world's biggest uh, nickel deposits in uh, Labrador by accident. And so, just to put it in perspective, like on that was a thousand to one shot. So, so on that one, thousand to one shot, how much, what did you put in? How much money did you make? And I'm just, again, trying to put this yeah. in the context of your overall career. I put almost nothing into it to start with. I, I did a private placement in that stock for um, 100,000 units at a quarter, 25,000 Canadian dollars, with a warrant to buy another share at 50 cents. And then it started moving and moving. And I sold some along the way, but then I did another private placement for 100000 uh, at $4 with another warrant. And, you know, I wrote it not all the way to two fifty, but I was selling in the hundreds mm-hmm. on that. So that'll happen again, even though mining itself is a crappy business and most of these companies reach their intrinsic value of zero. Um, it'll happen again. We're, I think we're on the... I think we're in the early stages of another bull market in these resource stocks. And I, but I say that even though I think the um, world is on the cusp of 
what I call the Greater Depression, which is going to be uh, much different, much nastier, and much longer lasting than the unpleasantness of 1929 to 46. Well, so so I want to get into that in a second, but a little bit more because your your career t- sort of took several different directions you 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 you're a good example of multiple sources of income or revenue you you were making money investing you were making money from writing you were buying real estate in the various countries you were you were traveling yep. to um you know what else what else did you start doing at this time well what else have I you know I've always read a lot of stuff I've always loved science fiction uh big fan of science fiction it's a much much better predictor of the future than Every think tank in the world added together. So, um, did a lot of reading. Uh, yeah, I've gotten involved. You know, I've always done things like, <clears throat> you know, for many years I was I was involved in martial arts. Uh, I'm too decrepit now to do that. It uh, really annoys me. Uh, I, I skydived for years. I've got 59 uh, free fall jumps. I've been a scuba diver. All over the world. I've scuba dived on a lot of stuff all over the world. I'll still do that. I played polo. I did that for 20 years. Really? Which is like running a small business that hemorrhages money. And uh, I've got to say, polo wind up destroying my body because eventually you take a fall and it's bad. Mm. And I took a couple. I didn't know when to quit. So, anyway. In in your book, uh, Speculator, which, which you which just came out, uh, the main character, Charles Knight, is asked, uh, tell me what the good life is. And so how would you define the good life? Well, it's almost a cosmic question, uh, I'd say, James, because um, uh, is this all there is that, uh, you know, we're born and you get uh, three or four score years and then what happens? So... To me, increasingly, the good life is being um, contemplative as opposed to action-oriented. Man's got to know his limitations, so... And yet you've been very action-oriented. You just described many things that require a lot of action, and you've traveled all over the world. You've set up, you know, your, your the Casey Research Group. You've written all these books. Um, you continue to invest. So you have been very action-oriented. Yeah, no, I play with guns and cars and all kinds of stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, uh, I've always been a believer in this, uh, in the Latin dictum, mens sana incorpore sano, a sound mind and a sound body. So you actually have to go out and do this crap. You have to, you have to do it. And, uh, why? Because maybe you'll discover the meaning of life by doing everything that it's possible to do. I don't, I'm not sure what the meaning of life is because I don't even know, well, I don't think anybody knows, quite frankly, uh, whether we're more than just a mortal body or whether we're, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Do you, do you have an idea on this? I have, I have no clue. I mean, you have all these religious fanatics. It seems certain that magic things are going to happen after they die. I mean, maybe, uh, but uh, I think that's the ultimate question of life, is, is this all there is, or are we living in the matrix? That's a possibility. And a lot of people, uh, I mean, I forgot what company or school just came out with a report saying it's highly likely that we're living in a massive simulation. But, but what I want to ask about related to this, during this time, 
you're making all this money, you're focused on investing, but then you started kind of an interesting side hobby, which I have never heard of before or since, which is you decided you wanted to essentially take over a country. Oh, yeah. That, that, that is interesting, uh, actually. Uh, how did I get started in that? I know what it was. And I, I've known people who've traveled around with you to these countries. I've verified that you've tried to do this. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, the first one, uh, when the idea was still in Kuwait in my mind, but I was hatching it, was I was in Dominica, which is a nothing nowhere island uh, uh, in the in the uh, uh, eastern uh, Caribbean, and um, so as usual, I call up lawyers and real estate brokers uh, because they'll see anybody because you might be a rich guy from you know and do business with them and i interviewed a bunch of them and i met this one lawyer we got along well and he said he said you know mr casey you ought to meet my brother kenny who is the director of the industrial development bank and he calls his brother and he sets up dinner for me so um two of us are having dinner and blah 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 and he's a little bit suspicious of me because you know he's a black guy who's supposed to be in charge of development for Dominica, which is a, an island with 80,000 black people. Beautiful island, incidentally. And, you know, he's thinking maybe I'm an Uhuru jumper, which is not was not far off the what mark. What does that mean? Uh, that's from uh, the Swahili. Uhuru means freedom. And uh, uh, when Kenya uh, went uh, independent, uh, they were all yelling Uhuru, Uhuru. And then afterwards... Uhuru jumpers, which were white people coming in to exploit their these unsophisticated people that now had political independence. So that's what an Uhuru jumper is. Mm. So anyway, we're talking, and uh, I'm my mind is working. How am I gonna, you know, make this a worthwhile dinner instead of just a dinner where I pick up the tab? So I said uh, uh, to him, uh, you know, I believe that we can raise a great deal of money for Dominica. And, you know, he looks at me and says, well, what are you thinking? And I said, look, right now, there are many people around the world. And at that time, South Africa and Hong Kong were two places where people wanted second citizenship, second passports, so they could get out of Hong Kong, which is before it was, you know, it was in the old days. And South Africa, which, of course, they were looking for the inevitable race war, so they wanted to get up. The Afrikaners needed a second passport to travel on. South African passport wasn't very good or stable. So I said, look, why don't we take uh, one of these mountaintops you have here, of which you have many, and we'll put it in a corporation, and we will um, uh, then offer citizenship to people that invest in this corporation, which has an asset that you'd put into it, and maybe we'll charge $50,000 for an economic citizenship. And I think we can sell 50, I think we can sell 1,000 of these economic citizenships. So, you know, he's the director of the Industrial Development Bank. I think he can do the math. Hmm. 50,000 times 1,000 equals 50 million. Oh, this is big money. And then I saw his eyes light up, and then I thought, but we can, we can do more. Then we'll take that company, which has now $50 million of capital, and we'll take it public in New York, London, and Tokyo and raise really big money, billions. And people that are of significant help to the corporation, and I looked them in the eyes and said, well, like you, for instance, might get warrants in the company at a penny apiece, maybe a million of them. 
and we'll take a public of ten dollars. I'm hoping, you know, he, he's the director of the bank; he can do this math. And ten minutes later, he goes off to call the president of the company, who was Eugenia Charles. Which, if you'll remember, the president of the company or the country of the country, yeah, Eugenia Charles. When uh, Reagan invaded Grenada, which was, I think, the next year. Uh, Reagan wasn't the head of the invasion force. Eugenia Charles was. Because you always got to get a beard, you know, to make it look multinational and this kind of bullshit. So he set up uh, an appointment with me the next morning. Now, this is this is where the bad news happens. Turns out his, her father was deathly ill. He dies that night. And, you know, there's going to be a Caribbean funeral and I'm not going to be able to see her for three or four days. And like an idiot, uh, I flew out instead of waiting to see Mrs. Charles and who knows? Everything could have been different. So uh, that was my first adventure, and there have been, you know, there have been a dozen more, and they've all been very interesting. Like, what's but, another one? Well, I spent uh, a month in Suriname one time. Uh, this is this is this is quite interesting, actually. I, I I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this whole story. There well, was a, we won't tell anyone else. Okay. <laughs> there was a friend of mine who was an ex-Air America spook. And um, uh, he was living in London, and he was trying to train um, a Praetorian guard for the government of Suriname. And Suriname, at that time, they were very bad boys. Uh, you know, reputed the government was in the drug trade and all this type of thing, which I, th I saw nothing wrong with, quite frankly. So, anyway, uh, word spreads quickly in the mercenary community of who's doing what and who's trying to get what kind of a contract. So Patrick is trying to get a contract to train a Praetorian guard because the army's dragging their FNs around by the barrels down there. And he gets a call from a guy named Ted Bishop, who's subsequently joined the ranks of the departed. And Patrick has too, I think, although I don't know where he is. And uh, Ted calls him up. He's got this Eastern Tennessee accent. Says, says Mr. O'Connor, I understand we are on the opposite sides of a little situation down in South America, and I think we ought to get together and have ourselves a powwow. So Patrick calls me up and says, you want to come to the powwow? And I said, oh, sign me up. So we met in Dallas Airport, and I listened to these two guys talk about, you know, how they're going to be on the opposite sides of the situation because Ted is trying to arrange with the U.S., British, French, and Dutch governments to help him overthrow the government down there. So this is really funny stuff. And um, so I'm listening for a half an hour, and Ted's probably wondering who the hell I am, really, just sitting there listening to them talk. So I explained my plan, which I had hatched at this point, which is basically taking 100% of all the government's assets, parastatal corporations, uh, all the land, ex-People's Republics, they still own all the land, everything the government owns, especially its political sovereignty. This is very important. Taking it what public. do you mean by its political sovereignty? Well, most of these countries, especially these little islands, their political sovereignty is worth a lot. Why? Because you can uh, then have corporations, you can issue banking licenses, uh, you can have a free trade port, you can sell your vote in the United Nations, which is actually a significant source of income for a lot of these nothing-nowhere little countries. Even right now? Even right now. Absolutely right now. Even right now. So... All these things. And so I, I explained to Ted. I said, uh, listen, why don't we, instead of, after you knock this country over, and what are you going to do? You're going to steal some stuff. You're going to get some mining rights. 
and retail them, which is also what mercenary companies tend to do. Uh, I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we do something of world historic importance? We take all the government assets and we distribute the shares uh, of all these assets, let's say 70% pro rata to every man, woman, and child in the country. So now they own a tangible asset instead of theoretically the people own the government and are democracy. This is all bullshit, of course. So now they actually own shares that they can sell. Um, then we would uh, perhaps take 10% and put it in trust for the next generation yet unborn. And perhaps we'd take 10% to take public in major stock markets and raise a couple billion dollars because this is, you know, we got you know, millions of acres of land and all, all the rest of this stuff. And uh, last, 10% would be for people that are of significant aid to the corporation. Well, people like you and me, for instance, and people whose rice bowls we've been breaking in this country. So uh, here's what Ted said to me after he thought about it for a moment. And this is one of those things when somebody says it to you, it's burned into your skull like a diamond. And he looked at me and he said, he said, God damn, Doug, that's a hell of an idea. You know what? Uh, them C-47s and miniguns, they're going to be just as good the morning after as they are the night before when we turn that army into the biggest jogging team in South America. Let's cookie cutter this motherfucker and take the show on the road. So then, having gotten that enthusiasm from him, I, I decided I better go down there and scope this place out myself. So I went down there for a month and I spent a lot of time in parties with the military dictator. I met everybody in the country. You know, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was a, a, a lot of fun. And, and I could have overthrown that government peacefully because what I was going to do after I knew everybody in the country and couldn't get them going because it's a snake pit where they're all afraid about what somebody else is going to get and all this type of thing. So I wanted to... Um, I figured I'd get a dozen guys who were presentable and who knew the rap and were trustworthy, go down there, and we would talk to all these people so they heard from somebody other than me. And then I would go bottom up and top down. And what that was, <clears throat> I was going to take out radio, TV, newspaper ads, explaining to the people what we were going to do for them, get them riled up, have my friends give speeches to all the groups in the country, religious, athletic, God knows what kind of groups, all kinds. Meanwhile, talk to the people on top. And uh, would you believe it? I couldn't find anybody to go down there with me, and I was going to finance it. Well, like even like a bank here in the U.S., like what an opportunity, you know, you would think a Goldman Sachs would uh, would want to take a country public. Well, yeah, uh, you'd think so. So, um well, there's, there's countries out there. And as, as we go into economic chaos in the next few years, which I expect, uh, you know, I might, have another kick at the, I might have another kick at the cat here. I've done this in 10 countries, and it's, it's all, the last one was Zimbabwe. I went back there, and I was supposed to meet with Mugabe, but he was, it turned out, was in Singapore for medical reasons. But I went with all the ministers. I should have met with a couple of generals, though, because the generals are going to take that place over. What about like Micronesia, like all the little countries, you know, like Tonga mm. or, you know, all those places where small countries ruled by one or two people or a family, and couldn't you convince any of them? Yeah, I tried in Vanuatu, which is... Um, it's about two hours from New Zealand. Exactly, yes, in the direction of Fiji. And uh, trouble with that is those people are, 
you know, uh, in um, Port Vila, I guess that's the capital, Sanafate, which is the island, there's it's this little place, like 40,000 people in the capital. There's only like 150,000 people in the whole country. Most backward country in the world. The most backward. Uh, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of kava bars in that city because they all go to these nakamals, they call them, and drink kava. Which what, is kava like coffee? Not really. Uh, it's a root that they used to have young boys chew it up and spit it out, and then you drink that, but now they just pound it. And when you drink it, it's it's like having Novocaine for your lower mouth. If you're you know, Novocaine when we were kids, used to anesthetize. Well, that's what it does, and it slows you down. And that's why there's no crime crime in Vanuatu. Everybody's kind of anesthetized on this stuff. It makes you peaceful. So uh, no, you can't get those people to do anything. So I tried that there, and I met with uh, an ex-president and a whole bunch of ministers. And waste of time. Uh, Palau. Uh, it's another country in the Pacific, little country, 17,000 people. I spent a week hanging out with the president, which is not hard to do in a country of 17,000 to become breast buddies with the president. But, um, you know, the usual thing, the enthusiasm and all that, but the president's best buddy, and it's usually the guys right under the president that'll screw you up, incidentally. The president's, uh, you know, I told him, look, you're going to become legitimately rich. Oh, interesting. You're going to become world famous, interesting, and the people are going to love you. Okay, tell me more. I always say, I tell them, tell me more. But uh, it's usually the guys underneath them that you're going to break their rice bowls because they're the ones doing all the stealing. But Paul was different. It was different. And so I talked to, spent a lot of time with the president's best buddy, and he said, look, what's going to happen is they're going to all go down and see you off when, when you're leaving and we have something here called the wheels-up syndrome. It means as soon as they see the wheels on that plane go up, they're going to forget about it and go back to just what they're doing now. And he was right. So, but so I do this for my own amusement. It's it's. It almost sounds like like you can make a TV show out of this, though. Like going from country to country, trying to take over each little country. You could, uh, you could, James. And one time, you might. Know, I've thought I really. I came. I thought I came close to getting lucky. Sometimes I really, really did, but um, there's always something. And, and, and I'm a one man band. You know, you need to be, you need to be Goldman Sachs that has that comes in there with a team. And, Why don't you like make a team and go in there like just for for show? For the same reason, I couldn't get anybody to come with me back to Suriname. I heard every bullshit excuse in the book. Oh, gee, the university will never give me two weeks off. Uh, and another guy said, oh, isn't it dangerous? And another guy says, uh, you know, I'd, I, I, we might get in some serious trouble with the Why U.S. Why didn't you bring government. some of these small investment banks? So, like, back in the 80s, there were all these tiny investment banks. You could have brought any of them. I know. Well, that was then. Maybe I can do that. Maybe I can do that now. I mean, I've got an introduction to, to the guy that runs Sao Tome and Principe, Trouble is, it takes you a day to get there. Where is that? It's uh, off the west coast of Africa. Hmm. Yeah. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life 
so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's gonna be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability, as well as its robust interior, are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H I M S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction 
hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay, so now I want to I want to start getting into the topics of the the book. But you keep uh, uh, mentioning about the economic chaos coming in the next few years, yeah. And I want to challenge you a little on that, but maybe describe how it's going to happen because I have some some maybe naive questions about it. Well, listen, nobody can predict the future, so uh, I can be wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm used to being wrong. I guess we all are, quite frankly, but. Um, uh, you remember uh, what happened starting in 2007, and for a sure. while it looked like the world was going to come to an end. It was scary. Yeah, certainly these people in in Washington that uh, had them print up $750 billion and then more thought the world was going to come to an end. C- can I ask a naive question about that, actually? Because I think, I think this is actually a basic misunderstanding that the general populace has. When you say printed up, it's not like they actually had a printing press and dollars were coming off of it. Mm. What actually, when everybody says the Federal Reserve printed up currency out of nothing, what actually happens? What is happening? Well, what happens is that the Federal Reserve, uh, which actually is in charge of creating dollars, they buy assets. Like, suppose they bought a billion dollars worth of bad mortgage paper from some bank that was going to go bankrupt, okay? Okay, they buy the paper and credit the bank in question with a billion dollars of on their accounts. So 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 and and just to understand, the Federal Reserve is the the entity, it's not the Department of Treasury, it's the Federal Reserve is the entity that's allowed to just sort of put money into the bank's reserves. Exactly, exactly. In other words, uh, who, who they gave w- them that power? Well, you know, this is almost like getting into conspiracy theories, uh, which unfortunately have a bad name uh, because people actually do conspire. I mean, Adam Smith noted that everybody conspires. Um, it was created in 1913. Before that, uh, the U.S. used gold coinage for money. The dollar was just a name for one-twentieth uh, of an ounce of gold. That's what the dollar was. It was paper dollars were just receipts for gold on deposit in the treasury. So things changed then with the creation of the Fed in 1913. 
It was a, a disastrous thing, uh, the enemy of the common man in every way. And uh, it's the reason, the main reason, there are many other reasons, uh, unfortunately, why the average guy's standard of living is going down. And I, Although, let me, let me, again, just naively challenge, uh, since 1913, obviously, we've had so much innovation mm. uh, in every area of our lives. Like, in, right now, t- today, driverless cars in Pittsburgh are Absolutely. driving around, uh, you know, I don't know. I can name any industry. There's you're, innovation. James, you're hitting on the reason why I could be wrong about this. I'm a, a big fan of Ray Kurzweil and his idea of the singularity. And um, I think that because there are more scientists and engineers alive today than have lived in all previous history put together, and they're working, doing stuff, that... Uh, you know, in, in about eight or nine separate areas. I mean, robotics and artificial intelligence and space exploration, and most importantly, nanotechnology. That's the big one. That it could almost not happen. What kind of idiocy the government does because... Yeah, it seems like innovation outpaces the government. Just about, yeah. So that's the optimist case, and I, I hope that I'm dead wrong about the depression. At the same time, however... Uh, in order for science to advance, you need capital. And where does capital come from? It comes from people producing more than they consume and saving the difference. That creates capital. The problem is, if people don't have uh, an inducement to save because they're getting zero interest rates and inflation is destroying what they save, they don't save. So capital is not created. So this uh, uh, zero interest rate policy and the creation of money out of nowhere is actually destructive of civilization itself. And I take it personally because if Kurzweil's right, if I can hang on another 20 years, I might be able to come back with Bruce Jenner's body just after he won the decathlon. I mean, but not Bruce Jenner's recent body. <laughs> no, no. I, I want the old, the old one. <laughs> right. But uh, so, so that's interesting. So with zero savings, there is this... Um, um, kind of seduct- like and this is what happened in 2007. We had negative savings rate. Everyone was buying houses and getting into debt, and then there was all you know turning into derivatives. So, so the to to solve the negative savings rate, the Federal Reserve quote unquote printed up this money, and because we have this belief in this power of this piece of paper with George Washington on it or whatever president on it, that's what kind of at least temporarily save the economy, This purely this faith in this piece of paper. Well, it kept all these big banks and brokerage firms and insurance companies from going under. And if the banks had gone bust, then when people went down to get their paper dollars, they wouldn't have had anything. Their insurance policies, like with AIG, they wouldn't have gotten anything and uh, so forth in the brokerage firms. So that would have been financial chaos, but it would have been a good thing because all the distortions and misallocations of capital cranked into the system would have been liquid. The real wealth, the buildings, the skills people have, the technologies, that it's, that's not going to uh, fall down and be destroyed just because the uh, golden stacks no longer exists. So, yeah, that should happen. But then you'd have to totally deregulate the economy, and I mean radically, not bullshit deregulation like they say Reagan did and radically cut taxes, and I'd probably default on the national debt. Uh, So what would happen then? Because I'm not not so sure 
I disagree with you. I I think I agree. Like, what what happens if you basically what, what you're almost suggesting is making the U.S. borderless, like just nothing, everything we held true beforehand, just forget about it. And so what would happen if we started to do, do things like default on the national debt or de- and what does deregulate everything mean? Let's shut down every department in the cabinet. Let's sell off every federal highway. Yeah. Let's sell off all the universities owned yeah. by states. Yeah. Uh, what what else is in, in, in massive deregulation? Oh, abolishing all these lettered agencies and so forth. I mean, like, like FBI, FDA, Oh, God, the FBI has turned into a secret police force, for God's sake. Uh, it's a bureaucracy. It serves very little useful purpose. I mean, uh, the FBI is mostly about public relations, uh, television shows that they fund and all this. The CIA, that's got to go. I mean, uh, you, you can learn more. I mean, if the president read the New York Times, as crappy a paper as that's become in, in recent years, uh, he'd learn more than the CIA can tell him. They've predicted absolutely nothing since day one. Uh, I mean, I'd even, I, I'd eliminate the uh, the FDA, which people, oh, we, we've got to have safe drugs and pure food. This is total nonsense. Uh, actually, I totally agree with you on the FDA. I mean, you have poisons like nicotine and alcohol, totally legal, and yet... Uh, life-saving cancer drugs, it costs $2 billion in five years to get them through, and most of them don't make it through because they can't raise the money. So there's absolutely... And and so many drugs are recalled after they're approved by the yes. FDA. So I totally agree. The FDA is a a, a, a waste of dollars and hurts a national health care. It, it, it kills more people every year than the Defense Department does in a typical decade. Hmm. So no, I mean, look... In a Could so- you sell the FDA? I'm sure that I'm sure that it has elements which have a market value. Uh, we could determine that they must have labs and so forth that can and, be and sold. Maybe the test results, all the statistics about each drug, almost you could create a Yelp for drugs based on the data from the FDA. Insofar as it's of any use, uh, some entrepreneur is going to want that and use it profitably. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. This is a shocking thought uh, to most people, but uh, uh, in in today's world. We really don't need a government. In fact, the government as an entity, I'm not talking about let's have a better government and Trump will cure everything. I'm, I'm saying the entity of government itself is like a predator. It's purely destructive and it attracts the worst people. You know, these idiots say, oh, we get the best and brightest to work for the government. No, that's not true. You get the poorest and worst people, people that believe in and lording it over their fellow humans and so forth. They're attracted to the government like hitmen are attracted to the mafia. So, uh, no, it should be gotten rid of. It well, serves well, no useful purpose. Well, you know, and let me ask you this question. I asked I asked um, Ron Paul the, the same question, which is that, is there a, you know, obviously in any society, there are some people who really cannot help themselves. They're they're sick or they're wounded or there, there's some aspect where they really do need some help. And is there a role for government in helping those less fortunate than ourselves? Because I, I do believe there might be some role for government there, as opposed to the massive role government takes in society. Is there some mm. role we can carve out for government? No, 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 there absolutely isn't, in my opinion. Uh, look, government is pure force. It's coercion. That's what it's all about. And it's only raison d'etre is to be is to protect you from coercion maybe an army maybe police maybe courts to allow you to just uh, adjudicate disputes without resorting to force uh 
as far as what you're talking about, James, that's why people have churches. That's why they have charities. And I don't even believe in charities. I think charities are a mistake also. I think if you're going to help somebody, it should be person to person so you know who you're helping and you can monitor what good your help is doing. These massive charities are they're dog's breakfast. They're horrible. Well, I think people don't even realize when you give a dollar to charity, they only have to take they take your dollar and they only have to spend three cents a year of that dollar yeah. on actual good works, which are you have no hand in at all. And then the rest is towards investing, marketing, and salaries. Yeah, and 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 uh, glitzy parties for the people that uh, give money to it, so they can feel like big shots, or maybe like the Clinton Foundation, which is just a gigantic slush fund. But this is true of many others too. So no, I don't, I don't give money to charities like that. If I want to help people that I think need help, I'll make the decision. I mean, this is all about personal responsibility and making that person take personal responsibility for money that you give him or loan him personally, and he should pay it back. But so, what, if, what if somebody can't take personal responsibility? They've been, they, they, again, they, they were born sick or, again, they need some sort hmm. of help. Do they have family or friends? Maybe they don't. Why won't they have any friends? Well, let's say you were born Maybe into a situation like a, like the, the the 80s term, the crack babies. You know, you're born into some situation where it's unfortunate. It's not your fault. You were born into this mm. situation. You 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 maybe need some form of help. Well, okay. I mean, there are there used to be beneficial societies in this country that used to do things like that. They're mostly disappeared now because it's been taken over by the state with welfare and all this type of thing. Used to be churches did that type of thing. Uh, I'm not religious, but you know that's fine if they want to do that type of thing. You can think of that as, as a community, um, you know, yes. group that exactly. I mean, if if people are really worried about these unfortunate people that through bad luck, uh, you know, maybe no fault of their own, I don't know. I, I they can organize themselves. You don't need a coercive entity to extract money from other people to. Well, what about to enforce contracts? Because like you mentioned, when you started out as a, uh, a an insurance broker, an edge you had was that you had a better contract than your competitors. Mm. So so what about um, who, who can enforce? So contract law and the ability to protect our, our lives and our property seem to be important, but but might be outside of our personal responsibility. Mm, no, that's, no, that's that's a good point. I think that in a... Um, <sighs> In a, in a truly civil society, uh, what keeps it together, just as what keeps society together today, it's not the cop on the corner. It's uh, peer pressure and social opprobrium and moral approbation and your reputation. These are the elements, the four elements that keep things together. And um, with the internet and things like that, um, these things are more important than they've ever been. So, listen, you're always going to have bad actors. You're always going to have a certain criminal element. I mean, it's, it's Pareto's. And you have it now with the full government. You yeah. have a huge criminal element. Well, worse than that, yeah. because the worst people are the ones that go into government. They're attracted by being able to use force to boss their fellow humans around. So, so let me ask you, I want to I bring this into the book, Speculator. Ah. So <laughs> I'm sorry we took so long to get to the point where... No, a, I'm having a good time. It's a fascinating premise. Tell us about the book. Well, look. And, and uh, why did you decide to go from, you know, you, you've written all these great books, totally incorrect, obviously crisis investing many years ago, which still holds up. Uh, uh, how did you get into fiction? 
because you can say things in fiction that you can't say in nonfiction, or you can say them more effectively in fiction, I'd say. So this is, Speculator is the first of a series of six, or actually seven, uh, and who knows, maybe there's more, uh, uh, novels that explore uh, very politically incorrect things. Uh, I'm taking, initially, six unjustly besmirched and highly politically correct, incorrect occupations and showing how you engage in them and it's a morality trail tale in that how you can be a good guy engaging in these you know untoward occupations and the first is speculator this book is about gold mining so it's a wealth of information about gold mining the business and gold mining the stock thing it's a, our hero starts out with basically nothing he makes 200 million dollars which is possible um, and I show how, on this mining stock. It turns out to be a fraud, and it gets into trouble with the IRS and the SEC, so I go into all that stuff. And then uh, it ends with a, a revolution in Africa with boy soldiers and mercenaries, uh, which are some of my favorite characters, uh, the white mercenaries in this, in this novel. And uh, the government steals his $200 million from him, and then he wants his money back, so... The next book, he becomes Drug Lord. And uh, we talk about the legal and illegal drug business. And he makes another $200 million. I, I'm, that one's 80% done. And I'm going to be very happy with that because... Well, it reminds me of something you once said in one of your interviews where you talk about how no matter what, there's corruption in a society where you have you know, government and a populace, and it's on the fringes of this corruption, like, for instance, prohibition in the, in the 20s, where one can make enormous sums of money. Yes. Yes, exact, exactly right. Uh, and, of course, I uh, advocate 100% legalization of all drugs, not just marijuana. That's, that's a, a no-brainer. I'm talking about all drugs of whatever types. So... We're going to explore all that, uh, the morality. And then uh, after they steal his money again, he makes another $200 million uh, in um, Assassin, which is the third one, he decides there are some people that just need killing. And so we explore the Assassin's trade, how you do it, the morality of it, historical examples, were they good or bad? Should you be an Assassin? Uh, Reminds me of the uh, TV show Dexter, a serial killer who kills serial killers. Ah, yeah. So there's a lot of uh, exploration of, uh, you know, this type of ethical dilemma. Yes, like when, that's when the right. courts can't decide, can some, is it possible for vigilante justice to be somehow more moral than court justice? I, w I would have to say yes, uh, because from a moral point of view, incidentally, and we, we could actually, because you're interested in this stuff as much as I am, it's, uh, you know— you want to do the right thing, which Charles, my hero, always tries to do. And, uh, you know, I'd throw out all the laws in the law books. I mean, that's who can read all that stuff or understand it. I'd throw out the Ten Commandments, forget about them. I'd say there's only two laws. Do all that you say you're going to do. and so, don't, Which is contract law. Yep, and don't aggress against other people or their property. So don't, don't rob and don't kill. Yeah, basically. But then I thought about it some more, and I said, you know— Almost any fool can remember those two laws, but let's bring it down to the real nub of things. Let's let's centralize it into one law, and I would um, I would say oh, I'm trying to think of this genius. Well, it was Alistair Crowley really that said this that uh, 
the whole of the law shall be do as thou wilt. But be prepared to accept the consequences, which is one thing Crowley didn't say. And that's what I believe. That means whenever you, you can do anything you want. Well, you can do anything you want today. You can do anything you want. But most people don't, wait a minute, what are the consequences of doing that? And if people realize that, yeah, you can do anything, but there's consequences, uh, it'll make them more responsible and more thoughtful. And actually, it'll cleanse the gene pool because people with bad intentions or that are really overtly stupid, I mean, they'll disappear. That's so, what I think. You know, it, it reminds me a lot of, um, uh, of course, there's a huge criminal element in the United States, crimes committed every day. And a lot of them even say later they would have just kept on doing it, uh, except, you know, or, or they would do more, but just fear of getting caught. Like, it's not like ethics stops people from creating, from, from committing crimes. It's a fear of getting caught that stops people from getting, uh, from committing crimes. Most but you have a police force, in, which is mm-hmm. government-funded. Mm. And so is there is there room for a police force to enforce any of these laws, or do you expect it all on reputation? I don't think that the government should necessarily be necessarily be involved in the police because the police are, uh, I mean, that's a legitimate function of government in, insofar as it's protecting you from coercion. But I think it's too important to be left to the kind of people that inevitably go to work for government. I would much rather have a Mike Hammer or a Fred Mannix or, you know, uh, somebody like that, a private detective working on a case than a a flatfoot that, you know, is a government employee and puts away the tools at 5 o'clock. I'm not besmirching. I mean, there's a lot of cops that are really serious and good guys and all that. But then again, there's a lot of cops that have an extra Y chromosome. That's why they became cops. So, no, I think that, that could be left to the private market too. Although you look at like, let's say the 1910s, 1920s, when, uh, you know, industrial revolution was sort of coming into the modern age where you had, you know, unfortunately you had um, both corporations taking advantage of workers, but you also had unions taking advantage of corporations. And there would be these wars between them that where the corporations kind of took law enforcement into their own hands and unfortunate things happened. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, first of all, the Industrial Revolution of those days it was a, a time of turmoil where, you know, people that were on the farm were drawn to the cities and all this type of thing. Uh, but frankly, corporations, unless they get hooked up with the state, all they do is produce things that people want. I mean, cars and computers and stuff like that. And there are some unforeseen consequences. Well, what about the air pollution from the factories they have? Well, that's a tort against other people, and they should be sued for that in the court system and so forth. And uh, the unions against, you know, unions don't serve a useful purpose. I mean, I think uh, uh, they inevitably turn into hotbeds of corruption, Uh, always have and they always will, because do they do any good? No, they don't. They do good for the workers that are able to join the union, but all the people that can't join the union are excluded. Uh, so they're, the unions themselves are cartels because they're keeping other workers from joining the union. That's how they're able to... And, and they only work because the government gives them the right to enforce. Otherwise, the corporation could just hire anybody it wants. So I know a free market is the answer to 
to all these things. It's when the state sticks its slimy claws into things that, that you have violence and things the, like that. The state or other bureaucracies, like in the case of unions or some corporations or whatever. It seems like you're more almost anti-bureaucracy in all its forms. Yes, of course. I, of course, I've always been, an, let's say, an independent contractor. I, I'm hardcore unemployable. I mean, I don't like to work for other people. I have never salary. I mean, this is degrading to trade my life for, you know, a, a few pennies per hour or whatever it is. And I don't particularly like to hire other people, too. I'd rather pay people on a mission-accomplished basis. I'll give you X dollars if you'll do this for me. I think that's better. So, okay, so the, the, the main character, Charles King, comes right out the gate from nothing, makes $200 million. Um, Do you think that's possible in today's yeah. world? Yes, it's possible. Without it's, being in Silicon Valley yes. type world? I explain exactly how, how Charles does that. It's, and I, I think there's some people who are going to do that in this next mining bull market. Like I said, mining is an awful industry, a dinosaur industry. But uh, the stocks being as volatile as they are, yeah, it's possible to do. I mean, Charles starts out with nothing in the book, and I think it's credible how he makes all this money. Well, Doug Casey, author of Speculator, what's great about this novel is that it encapsulates so much 35 or 40 years of all of your contrarian ideas and thinking, and you're you're so intelligent. I remember, or, you know, I watched you on on. Phil Donahue, the clips on on YouTube where you were so uh, uh, just intelligent talking to Phil Donahue and answering the questions of the audiences. Like they were booing you at some point. Yes, that was fun. Yeah, and it was just an amazing thing to watch this 1980s talk show with you on it uh, and coming out in the, you know, right after your crisis investing book was a bestseller. And even Phil Donahue was trying to make fun of you, but you were like, no, Phil, that's not true. And uh, so smart in that. And uh, I highly recommend your latest uh, speculator, the first of the high ground novels, and good, good luck. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, James, this has been a pleasure talking to you just for an hour, but we'll continue this later. Excellent. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know, and you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.